Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first, what's astonishing you this week? Well, for the very first time, well, you know how much I, well, maybe you don't know how much I watch YouTube videos. I spend a lot of time. I do, and I'm glad that we can bring this up, because Yolando Hinton is not on any social media. That's right. And for a long time, I was like, man... He is just really a higher quality human being. Than Absolutely I am not. Because he doesn't waste his time on any of the social media foolishness. But he wastes his time playing little video games on his phone and watching YouTube videos. So that's a lateral move, in my opinion. And so I'm just glad to point that out. And I will take that. Well, so I watch a lot of YouTube videos, long videos, short videos, and... Um, Richard Hatch videos. Ri- yeah, <laughs> listen to Richard Hatch. <laughs> it's hard to listen to, but I listen to. Uh, so for the very first time in all the years I've watched YouTube videos, I commented on someone's video. Like, I have a YouTube account. I've posted some of my own videos. I'm working on some now. Uh, But this is the first time, and I read comments, but this is the first time I've ever commented on a video because I was so moved by it. It's a video of a woman named Carolyn Moore. She is a United Methodist minister, I believe, in Augusta, Georgia. I think her church is called Mosaic Church. And you sent me the link. I sent you the link, Mm -hmm. yes. And basically, she is, it looks like it's the beginning of a series of videos on the... Uh, it's called seed, Seedbed Production. I think it's it's out of Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. But uh, it looks like it's the beginning of a series of videos on the, the supernatural power of Jesus and uh, the supernatural calling of the church and, and a call to come back uh, to that. And again, she's a mainline Protestant. And I, I think my expectations were just really low because, you know... Mainline Protestants are really not really known for this, but I listened. As a matter of fact, I was driving in to the church on Monday morning, and I was in tears by the time it was done. I think it's just a 17-minute video. It's not very long. But she begins with, or really her central text is Luke 9, where Jesus commissions his disciples. He says, I'm, I, I give you authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, go and proclaim the kingdom. And they do it. And she says, we've got to remember the the supernatural commissioning of the church. And again, I was so moved by it because she, she, well, she's just a really good preacher and teacher, very engaging and, um, yeah, just astonished by Carolyn Moore's video on the supernatural calling of the church. And, and again, this is something you and I have talked about many times, right? If you are a certain uh, place in our society with a certain amount of agency, if you've got a certain amount of money, certain amount of power, you don't, and you're a Christian, you don't tend to rely on or seek the supernatural as much as someone who is poor and mm-hmm. um, in the eyes of our society powerless because 
you know, those you begin to see those people as weak and a bit silly and... Um, well, I mean, to, to be thinking about the supernatural realm um, and to be thinking about relying on the manifestation of God's power in that way is to experience much greater vulnerability than most of us are willing to walk around with every day. And so I think most people who would be uncomfortable by this conversation would rush to say, and rightly so, I do depend upon the power of God. I do trust God. I just, you know, see manifestations of God's power through, you know, the institutions of society and through the democratic process and through modern medicine and through, and and so, and of course that's not wrong. I mean, the physical manifestations, I mean, you know, all things are of God. And so the created world is of God. And so to experience God working through those forms is not wrong, but it's also a limitation. It's a, and so, I mean, the problem is when we all, when anybody says, I believe in the supernatural and not the quote natural, or I, I work with the natural and not the quote supernatural. And just the reality that all of that, when you think theologically, is just a very arbitrary human construct to say this part is of God and this part is of creation. I mean, that's just not theologically accurate. Yeah, yeah. And I'm mindful that she's speaking to other mainline Protestants mm-hmm. that have this very strong divide between secular and sacred, mm-hmm. supernatural and natural, when biblically speaking, uh, the, the the supernatural world is within the natural world, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, and that's why, I mean, again, I think as much as I, you know, f- I, I don't want to make light at all of the death of the church, the death of any church, whether it's a local congregation or, you know, a, a denomination. I mean, that that's not insignificant and it's not cute. Um, but I also feel like some things that are dying in the mainline institutional churches are, are things that have been really um, weakening us and mm-hmm. limiting us. And it is good that they are dying because it's then forcing us to look at where our real identity is, where our real treasure is, and where our real power is. And I think as the institutional church grows weaker and weaker, people are going to have no other choice but to turn to God and to seek God in new ways and rely on God in new ways. And that is is good. <laughs> yeah, and if you're following the simple biblical narrative of the Gospels, Jesus has called these 12 ordinary people to follow him. And for a time, they simply watch Jesus mm-hmm. do these miraculous signs. And then there's this turning point where Jesus says, the stuff that I've been doing... You need to do it. He, here you go. Yeah. I, I give you the authority to do this. And yeah. that is, that's really astonishing. And it's it's... It's rare for mainline Protestant churches to step into that, to, to adopt that, and to say, yeah, that's for us too. Well, and just to say, I mean, if, what does it mean? What what does it mean? Like, what mm-hmm. do we do with the story? And, and at least to tell the truth about saying this makes us really uncomfortable and we can't figure out, you know, if we think, well, it can't mean that we're going to be casting out demons. Like, yeah. that can't be mm-hmm. what it is. To really say, well, where is that presupposition coming from? Because it's not coming from the text. I mean, yeah. and, and so that's yeah. just a really important thing, you know, to say if we say sola scriptura, mm-hmm. then we got to figure mm-hmm. out what, what we do with that. And I do think, you know, we were talking earlier about um, that Bible Project um, podcast 
on trees that I'm totally going to reform. That's fantastic. For 20, coming to you, 2021 <laughs> at the Grove. Um, but, but that idea of contrasting the tree of life with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's captivating to me about that is how often in the church we try to reduce our spiritual life to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that we just want to say what it means to be in right relationship with God is that we're the people who know what's good and what's bad, mm-hmm. and and that's it. And so we're going to say what's good and say what's bad, and, and and that's it. That's our whole that's our whole realm. And what God has always been inviting us to is an abundant life, a life beyond what we could ask or think or hope or imagine, and a life that we can't create for ourselves. And that, I mean, while it is exhilarating, it requires this huge leap of faith that many of us don't want to make, and it requires total vulnerability upon God. And we would just rather stay and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and say, this is what I was made for, is just to be the person who says, here's what we're against and here's what we're for. And that wild life is not something that I even desire. And so I think that's a great example of why we would turn that story into a metaphor, Yes. And just say, like, that's all. This is just a metaphor. But the problem is, once you start turning things into metaphors, it's hard to stop. Because then it's not just that casting out demons is metaphorical, but it's then loving your enemy is metaphorical. Mm. And don't store up treasure on earth. That's a metaphor. And all of a sudden, we're left to... Somebody the other day sent me a text and was talking about... They were like, you just preach every week about kindness and helping other people. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, this is not someone who's part of the Grove. But I'm like, yeah, that's... Absolutely. I hope what I never preach. I mean, like, I hope that nobody ever is at the Grove thinking that the gospel is about kindness and helping other people, because that is just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy mm-hmm. of what the gospel is. And so, but I mean, I get it, because once you start making the biblical text metaphorical, you just can't stop, because every time you get to something that seems beyond your desire or beyond your grasp, you go like, oh, no, that's yeah. not for me. You reduce it. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> um, so. yeah. Well, this piece by, by Carolyn, um, it's been a long time since I listened to one sermon by a particular preacher and thought and felt deep within me, if I were not a pastor... I would go to that person's church. Oh, so now wait a minute. I missed. I I buried the lead here. I missed the big question. What did you comment? You started with like I've never commented. On oh, a YouTube yeah. Video what um, did you say? I I mean it was just a short like preach. Thank you. Um, oh, something like you're exactly right. It was just affirming this is right and good. And I think I maybe quoted um, Acts one eight. Um, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Because um, I think there was one. Uh, person who commented that said, no, she's all wrong. Uh, that kind of power was only for the first apostles. It's not for the church today. Um, and so I just really wanted to and affirm. That's, you read that in Third Timothy, right? That's like Third Timothy chapter 5, verse 2. Everything written here is for the early yeah. church and not later. Yeah. Just no. that is a stupid Bible no. nerd joke <laughs> because there is no Third Timothy. And so the joke in seminary is whenever anybody said anything that was just clearly culture or tradition third and Timothy. not biblical, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's in Third mm-hmm. Timothy, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, so... Um, well, good. Well, so, what's astonishing you? Um, so, I we're late dropping. I thought dropping. you were going to say, well, because we ran this morning, and that's astonishing <laughs> you. And that is astonishing <laughs> me. It's cold out there. Um, no, I we are. You are going to post this a little bit late because it's Friday, and we yes. usually record this podcast on Tuesday, and um, we didn't this week because I was traveling, 
And I, I think, um, the, I know I have said this before, but I just think it's really worth saying again. It is astonishing to me how much I love I love this call and I love this community and I love being a pastor. Um, and it always surprises me how when I am separate from the community, like when I have a week that is basically like either I'm geographically somewhere else or I'm, you know, maybe I'm doing a lot of work from home or a lot of work on my computer or just not, I'm not physically with the people who are in this community, how quickly my spirit sinks and how overwhelmed I get and how discouraged I get. Um, and then it is amazing how being gathered with the community in one space really, um, changes everything for me. And, and I, I just, it's astonishing to me that it is true. It is astonishing to me that I forget it every time. And I just, I think that's worth saying because I know, because community is hard and finding a community is difficult and sticking with a community is difficult. And it is, um, easy to just give up, um, Mm. and make that optional or to decide that, you know, as long as your personal relationship with Jesus is, is, is good. And as long as you're sort of living according to the values as you understand them or like listening to preaching or worshiping on your own, that that's fine. And I just, I think it's really important to continue to say that we are made for community and we never get to a place where we grow past that need. And there are just, there's a hope that we experience when we are together with our brothers and sisters that we can't when we're apart and we need that hope because we can't we can't speak to embody you know preach to envision an alternative to current reality if if we don't have an experience of something beyond <laughs> just yeah. what yeah. is expected and predictable. And, um, so I just, you know, it's just been astonishing. Like this has been a difficult week and, and, and part of a part of it is just that it's hard to be the church alone. Like it's just hard. Mm -hmm. And when you're thinking about, Oh, I haven't done this and this isn't happening and I forgot about this and I should have done that. And that plate, you know, just, you know, being a part of a church community and, and especially pastoring can just feel like this, like evil Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> it's just like everything is interdependent with every other thing. And, or, or like one of those, um, like magic shows where like they, they throw up one plate and then another and another and another, and you're just constantly like they're trying, spinning, the right, spinning, spinning them. And yeah. you just, and mm-hmm. there's just more and more and you keep yeah. having to, or like, yeah. you got to go and, back to the first one. And go right. back, I mean, it's just, make sure it doesn't fall. Right. And just this split side. And like, if you just miss one thing, yeah. it just feels like the whole, whole thing, thing is going to yeah. collapse. And that's a really hard burden to bear. And obviously, you know, you know, theologically, doctrinally, you know, you're not alone, but you can feel so alone. And every time I'm then in the community and with people, it, it's like being knocked over the head with this two by four of grace, like, oh, you're not alone and you're not responsible for everyone. And there's something that's happening in the interconnectedness of this community that is, um, that is alive and, and powerful and is not, is in us, but not of us. And, and that's the thing 
um, that sustains us and not your ability as an individual to hyperfunction or never make a mistake or be everybody's everything. And so I just, you know, alone, I am sad and overwhelmed and discouraged. And when we, when I am in the community, I, I have hope and I forget that. And I just throw that out there. Like that's one reason that we keep showing up every week is because we need it individually or somebody showed up needing that and, and your showing up for them is just a, is just a manifestation of grace. So, you know, I'm totally cracking up over here. I know. Why are you laughing because at me? Because <laughs> spoken like a true extra, extrovert, <laughs> right? When I'm alone, I'm sad. I'm sad. <laughs> when so I'm with sad. the community, I'm energized. And But, I mean, you make a great point that there is something very not just valuable, I need a different word, but powerful, spiritual, in being with the people of God. And I think I think you, you make that point very clear and very well. But my, I have a different dynamic as an introvert. When I'm alone, I feel, I feel energized. And when I'm with the community, it can be draining, especially in pastoral leadership. However, if I spend too much time alone, there is something that I miss, even as an introvert, about being in the midst of God's people. And there, there is um, an empowerment. There is... Um, a, a real spiritual connection that I miss when I'm when I'm away from God's people for too long. But I'm just saying, like, but but it's different. Like we were joking earlier today that like I drove, I had an eight hour drive on Monday, which turned into a ten hour drive, and then an eight hour drive yesterday. And we were just joking how for you that's bliss, and for me that's torture. And I like the whole time I'm like trying to call someone, I'm listening to podcasts. Like, what can I do to avoid being alone with my thoughts? And so you're right. I mean, part of it is like I just like to be around people, but that's not, but that's not what I'm talking about because it's not just absolutely being with people, yes. which you can be. It's being in this community of people who are, who have seen who've seen the Lord and who are are pulling together after that same thing. I mean, and we, there should be a caveat that, like, I am really blessed and you are really blessed that we, we are serving in churches that are, I mean, struggling, but are healthy. Like, so, I mean, there are communities that are not, that can be really toxic and can not be places You and that. I enjoy really good relationships with the people we serve Correct. in our congregations. Right. Yes, and, and that is a great blessing. But yes. I just think, I mean, I do think it's important to say this isn't about being an introvert or an extrovert, it, and it isn't really about being in community per se. Yes. It's about being in a community of believers who have been called um, to create something yes. Um, that is, you know, um, an outpost of the kingdom of God. And that's, and, and that's this thing that individually we all, I mean, if we believe in Jesus, mm-hmm. we all believe in the way of Jesus. And we mm-hmm. all probably even feel some sense of compulsion to do our part. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that in and of itself can become a, a burden and a trap. And it's being in this community and realizing that even without being a, quote, successful church, just by gathering together in the name of Jesus and striving for something, even badly, even messily, even failing, um, is in and of itself faithfulness. And it's just not about how good we are at pulling it off. It's about how we keep showing up for one another and keep 
pointing to Jesus and keep naming the values of the gospel and repenting when we miss them and bearing with one another in love, even when it is uncomfortable and we don't know what God is doing in our midst. There's just, there's something about that. Yes, that is I edifying. totally agree. I totally agree. And even as an introverted leader, when I go away and I can get energized in my time alone and I've you know, re-enter the community or reconnect with people. And that, for me, just naturally is very draining. There is still, as an introvert, something that is energizing about the community, about the Derrida Church community. Um, when we have, for example, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I talked about, you know, a certain worship service that was just really fantastic. That was so... I was physically... I was tired. I was mm-hmm. drained. I gave a lot. I poured out a lot. But there was a spiritual high that you, I think you can only get from the church. Well, and I just think the reality is if you, and it took me a long time to see this because I, you know, grew up as an American Christian. And so I read the gospel through the eyes of the culture and I read it for myself and what could I get out of it and mm. what was Jesus doing for me and I but then you go back and allow you know the whatever the bible to read you and you realize it I mean God keeps calling people to community I mean it's all I mean it, even even when there is an individual call it's always for the sake of the community always 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 and I think we ignore that to our peril or our or our cultural context blinds us to it and so we just don't see how much you know, it is true of us that it's yeah. not good for us to be alone. Because the, the 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 context, being in the context of God's people, being in the midst of other people, that's that's the arena of our sanctification, of our growth and holiness. Because as Joyce Meyer, I heard her say once many years ago, we're all like sandpaper. And sometimes we just rub each other the wrong way. But in the midst of that, God is using other people to smooth out our rough edges. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I just am very eager to be in worship on Sunday. I'm very eager to be back with my community um, because I because I need them. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. can't do this alone. And, uh, and, and so I'm grateful that I have not been called to do that. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, what are you thinking about? I am thinking about um, a book that I bought 20 years ago. Uh, the book that I've been reading by Thomas Oden on how Africa shaped the Christian mind led me back to a book that I bought uh, again 20 years ago. As a matter of fact, I think I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, uh, the, the book is entitled Black Biblical Studies. It's by Charles B. Kofer. He's an, he was an Old Testament professor at uh, the ITC, Interdenominational Theological Seminary in Atlanta. And um, the reason I went back to that book is because in our community at uh, Dariah Church, I've been asked, and no one has probably asked you about this, but I've been asked about uh, the, the curse of Ham. There was an old theory of Ham, and there's a new theory of Ham. So the old theory of Ham says that Ham, in the biblical narrative, the son of Noah, dishonored his father, Noah, 
and Noah cursed him. That is in the biblical narrative. But then um, a myth is placed on top of that, and the myth is that the curse, number one, is black skin, and that all people with black skin are cursed to be servants or slaves. That's the myth that's laid on top of that biblical yeah. narrative. In 3 Timothy. It lays that yeah. out in 3 Timothy. 3 Timothy, yes, yes. But that myth existed for... I'm sorry, can we just... Can, instead of saying the word myth, can we just say lie? Sure. I mean, I mean, it's not... There, it came from nowhere except a craven way of justifying it was a prejudice looking yes it was people are trying to figure out how do we ignore the common sense reading of the biblical narrative that like hmm how can we keep slaves if god freed the slaves in egypt and hmm how can we keep slaves and sell children away from their mothers if the bible tells us to love our enemies and i mean like how can we justify our actions and still claim to be you know, moral, God-fearing people. We want to be a God-fearing chosen person, but Mm -hmm. we also want to Mm -hmm. serve slaves. And so we want to have slaves. And so we need a way to twist the biblical text to justify our sinfulness. And so we take an obscure verse from the Bible and then we create out of, I mean, not out of thin air, out of expediency, a whole lie that came from nowhere. I mean, it came from nowhere, except evil. Yes, yes. Well, and it existed for a good, what, 16, 1700 years. Well, I mean, and then let's scholars, not even pretend that it doesn't still exist. Well, it's still being it's, taught. It's not it. as powerful as the new myth. Um, uh, scholars went back to the text and saw, oh, wait, wait a minute. If you read the narrative, um, yes, Ham dishonors his father, Noah. Noah pronounces a curse. But the curse is pronounced not on all of Ham's descendants. It's pronounced on the youngest son, one son, his name, Canaan. So it's on the Canaanites. We're we're not talking about um, uh, African folks, right? But that was used to justify slavery. So around, oh, I, I think around the 1800s, scholars came back to the text and says, oh, no, we got that all wrong. Okay, so we... we My we, bad. Yeah, we, <laughs> we started to leave uh, that old Hamite myth. But then a new myth uh, emerged, and I think the, the new myth is stronger, it's more deeply rooted, Uh, I think we're having a harder time overcoming this new myth. And uh, the the new Hamite myth says that the sons of Ham were not black at all. The old old Hamite myth says, yes, they were all black people. The new one says, you know what? All those people, they're all white. They all have white skin. And so all of the Egyptians... Uh, they, they were not black. They, they were white. So, and, and it, it, it 
comes around the time when Napoleon, Napoleon goes to Egypt and he sees all of these statues and all this artwork with African features. And Napoleon concludes, surely black people did not build this stuff, right? And so this new Hamite myth says that everyone in that that Mediterranean world was white. There, There was no one with black or brown skin. And so thus you get... Uh, in the movie, The Ten Commandments, you get... White um, <laughs> Yes, and uh, who plays Cleopatra? Um, Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, mm-hmm. yes. And so they make a distinction between Africans in Egypt and sub-Saharan mm-hmm. Africans. And so, again, there's this, this kind of whitewashing of the biblical text, which just isn't true. And uh, Dr. Kofer uh, lifts, lifts up um, uh, a prophet. I can't remember if it's Zechariah or Zephaniah. I should have this memorized. But he is the son of a man named Cushy, and everybody knows Cush mm-hmm. is Ethiopia. It's African. It's people with brown skin. So here we have an Old Testament prophet of Israel who is the son of mm-hmm. someone from Cush, and this same prophet is also a descendant of one of the kings of Israel, which mm-hmm. I think is Hezekiah. Mm-hmm. So he's like, look, here is evidence that there is possibly a brown-skinned, black-skinned king of Israel. So I just think this new, um, this new myth is so deeply rooted, so ingrained, that we have a hard time seeing people in the biblical narrative as something other than European. And again, as people like, you know, you and I who are leading multi-ethnic communities of Jesus, it's just crucial that we begin to help people see the multi-ethnic, multicultural nature of people in the biblical narrative. Because in the ancient world, the issue was not skin color. The Mm -hmm. issue was nation and the gods you worship. Mm-hmm. Skin color, that's that's a really modern idea. And this whole idea of the the, the oids, right? Those racial groups, mm-hmm. um, that's a that's also a, a modern myth that we impose on the text. The, the 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 biblical writers are not concerned about race. In their minds, there's only one race, human race. There are nations. But again, these these myths, these lies, these prejudices that we impose upon the text really obscure when we're reading how we see the people in the narrative. And we need to change that because our communities, your community and my community, as they grow in being multi-ethnic, look a lot more like the biblical world than we realize. Well, and I just, I mean, I think it's really interesting because we don't really realize how much our worldview is framed by white supremacy until until we get a lot older and start and start looking for it and i i was looking at my oldest daughter she had a study sheet that she was completing for her um social studies class and one of the questions um was you know what are the three 
best, uh, like what are the three good things that came from the North Carolina gold rush? And the first answer was removed Native Americans from the territory. And so, and I don't remember what the other two were, but I, I went to her and I was like, Callie, like what, like why did you write that? And she's like, mom, I don't think that. That's just what's in the text. She's like, that came straight from the book. That's not what I believe. That's just what, but I just thought like, so in the book, the question is, what are three good things that came from the North Carolina gold rush? And the, and the first answer is removed Native Americans from the territory. And I think, you know, and my kid is, you know, because of choices that we've tried to make as a family is much more aware of race and my kids see color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we've taught them to see color. We have conversations all the time about white privilege and white supremacy and, you know, what does it mean to be an ally and what does it mean to be biased? And, you know, my middle daughter especially is always coming to me and asking, like, is it a, is it a bad that we're white? And, like, I feel mm. ashamed to be white. And we have these really difficult conversations all the time. And so, I mean, Callie is at, at, least, at least able to say, I know that's not good, but I had to write it down because it was in the text. But I'm like, what in the actual world if these middle schoolers who, I mean, they don't, I I mean, and I I get it. They don't care about anything except I got to write this down and write the right answers down so I I can get on the, pass the test. That's all they care about. But it's this like deep level identity forming propaganda that says that white people are better than brown people than native people and getting rid of people of non-European descent is a good thing. And I, I mean, I want to raise a kid who would not write that answer down, but would also go to her teacher who's a black man and say, what, you know, and again, I'm not mad at the teacher either. I'm not mad at the teacher either because teachers have very little control in their classrooms. Mm. I mean, they get standards from the state that are the common core from the textbook publishers. And they just, you know, there's answers that people need to write down. But I think about, you know, that same text being taught on a reservation somewhere. I mean, but I'm just saying like, that's how deep it goes that we're taught to understand not ancient history, but I mean, contemporary national history from the from the perspective of white supremacy. And like definitely growing up, definitely I had it in my head that back in ancient times, the people who lived in um, Egypt and in, you know, uh, uh, in like when you talk about Alexandria, mm-hmm. that those people were white people. Like that's how I pictured it. That's literally what I thought. I thought like, oh, it used to be, um, Native Americans who were in America, and then all the Europeans came, and now it's predominantly white. So it must have been something like that back then. It used to be like the Romans and the Greeks were down there too, and then later on, other people came up. And I don't know that it was specifically taught to me, or if it was just because my concept of what civilization was yeah. was so entrenched in European Enlightenment identity that it was just an assumption that I made, but certainly it was never corrected. Like certainly nobody ever said, and I went to school, I was bused to school by my parents' choice. I went to school at 36th and Muhammad Ali at Whitney Young Elementary School, right? Like I was in a very intentionally diverse community, but still nobody felt like it was important to point out like, hey, as we're studying this ancient civilizations, you do understand that the people that we're studying have black skin. Like you do understand that. I did not understand that. 
And on a bone deep level, my bias to this day will lead me to picture white skin over brown skin in certain ways. And that's just, I mean, a really hard truth that I grieve and it's going to take a lot of years of um, just healing to be healed of that. And um, so anyway, I just, I think it's super important that we continue to make sure that when people picture Jesus in their head, they don't picture a blue-eyed, white-skinned, blonde savior not because it is inherently bad to have white skin, blue eyes, and blonde hair. It's absolutely not. But so that we can see that Jesus is just as much our brother and our savior and the pioneer and perfecter of our faith with brown skin as he would be, that we can begin to feel as intimately close to Jesus with brown skin as we intrinsically do feel close to Jesus with white skin. And there's a great... Have I talked to you before about there's this this hmm. clip and everyone should pause it and go watch it. It's on BBC Three and it's called um, White Jesus Savior and it's this great um, little like two and a half minute clip of there's a guy praying in a church clearly in England and he's like Jesus I don't know what to do please help me and then all of a sudden there's the music and Jesus comes and he's like I'm here my child how can I help and the guy looks up and is like what because he's black. And the guy is like, and the guy he says, know what to he do. literally says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. I heard your prayer. I'm here to help you. And the guy's like, really? Does like not you're, he just, he literally can't get it. And, and the guy's like, oh, or, uh, Jesus is like, oh, were you expecting me to look like, and he pointed to that, that picture, you know, that we all have hanging, not at the Grove, but of Jesus, white yeah. Jesus. Were you expecting me to look like that? And he's like, well, kind of, yeah. And he's like, sorry, I'm Jesus. I was, you know, and he says, like, I was a Middle Eastern man who was um, arrested and tried for a crime that he did not commit and executed. Like, what does that sound like to you? Right? And, um, and the guy's like, I guess. And he said, well, would you like me to go get white Jesus? Would that make you feel more comfortable? He's like, actually, yeah. And he's like, there is no white Jesus. Sorry, I just yelled into the microphone. That's okay. great. Anyway, it's a great clip. It does drop one tiny little cuss word, which thankfully I noticed before I played it in church on Sunday oh, morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, it is just we have this image in our heads, mm-hmm. and it's important that we think about why do we need to picture these people as, I mean, it's important for me as a white person to think, why do I need to picture these people as white in order to identify with them? Mm-hmm. Why do I need to picture Jesus as white in order to feel safe and beloved Mm. and chosen by him, right? And that's why, I mean, one of the things that we've done, and maybe this is stupid, but I think it has been really helpful. Um, Like with our girls, we made a really intentional choice that when we started buying them baby dolls, that we bought them um, black baby dolls. That's good. Before we bought them white baby dolls. Before? Before. Because I want, when they think about nurturing and love, I mean, what they're thinking is baby. And when they think baby, I want them to think baby, not skin color, right? Like, I just feel like it's this thing of being able to say, what do I identify? Like, how do I recognize common humanity? Mm. I don't want you to recognize common humanity in skin color. I want you to recognize common humanity in, like, this baby has a head. I have a head. This baby has two eyes. I have two eyes. Mm -hmm. This baby, you know, I can pretend to rock and nurture and cuddle this baby just like my, I mean, you know, like I just think that's That's really, really important. Um, And 
and so yes, I a, a thousand percent agree with all of that. And I do think one of the things that is hard about um, creating authentic, holy, healthy, multi-cultural um, community is it is difficult to see humanity in people who are not like us, whose experiences are so different, and to really like accept that it, it takes longer to build relationships and it takes longer to build trust. And that's okay. It's, it's worth it. And it's work. And there comes a point where we have to talk about these uncomfortable issues if we are going to grow in our relationships with one another. There's mm-hmm. going to have to come a time, an uncomfortable time, when we, when we look at these things because if we don't, our relationships will only go so far, so deep. They, it, it's very easy for us to be in the same room as, as different ethnicities and culture, but not really connect, not go very mm-hmm. deep because uh, we avoid these uncomfortable conversations and we avoid looking at what's beneath the surface and our assumptions and the things we grew up with and how we've been shaped and our perceptions about the text and history. And um, when, when the text is read on Sunday morning, what, what do you see? And, you know, now that uh, so many churches have video screens, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then what what are the words you're saying when you project images on your screen? Mm-hmm. What what kind of spiritual images are they? All a certain type of right. ethnicity. How, how do you depict angels? How do you when you depict a scene where um, you know someone is good and someone is bad? Well, are the "Quote unquote good people" always a particular right. I mean, ethnicity. Was, and it was a couple years ago when it wasn't it Mark Burnett who did that doc, like dramatized series of the Bible, Bible on NBC, and mm-hmm. everyone in it was white except for Satan, who looked exactly like Barack Obama. <laughs> I mean, like I was like, are we just not yeah. talking about this? I think right there. Here? I think there was. was I think there was a um, an Asian angel when they did the. Uh, I believe it was. Sodom and Gomorrah scene. Uh, there's one agent. Uh, I, I think he actually like knew martial arts or something. Uh, but there, I I remember that. But um, outside I mean, the of that, was... but the biblical when people portray the biblical narrative in film, so often it's 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 very European. Well, I just I mean I think it really really matters that documentary series was cheesy, and. Um, meant to be sort of pop fluff, but also it reached so many people and the casting was not an accident. I mean, it was just not an accident. And so it just really matters who, who we see, um, and, and who we identify with. And we are really, we're really struggling. So anyway, I'm sorry. I, what, you're done. Are you done? Yeah. <laughs> Can you please edit this out? <laughs> I'm really, I'm really behind. It's well, Friday. Well, you've been traveling I'm, a lot. You, you, you totally, are allowed to be I've a little off. I've been separated from my people. <laughs> yeah. I can't think. I can't speak. Um, I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking about. <laughs> and it's ironic given what we just talked about. But um, so on the way back, I was listening to an audible book trying to stay awake. And somebody suggested that I listen to Amy Poehler's um, book. Mm-hmm which is called Yes, Please. Um, so granted, I was listening to a white woman 
<laughs> that's okay. Um, and it was really interesting. I was moved to tears at one point. I was not trying to learn anything. I really was not. I just wanted to stay awake. I wanted to be amused, and I wanted to stay awake. And um, But she has this section um, in the book. There's one chapter, and it's called Sorry, Sorry, Sorry. And I, I should caveat. I, I think it's good. I've only listened to half of it, and she cusses a lot. So I'm not... I mean, I'm not suggesting everybody goes out and reads the book. This is not, not Sunday school curriculum. This is not Sunday school curriculum. But it's really interesting. So she has this whole chapter in the book where she talks about a sketch that she did that was, in retrospect, really offensive towards disabled people. And then she got a letter from another actor and his wife, who's a producer, and I didn't catch their names, but they wrote her a letter and said, shame on you for making fun of a young girl with a disability. Mm. And that's, you know, you should be ashamed that you did that. And she then realized that this, um, you know, this reference was actually about a real person um, and came to realize that the real person had actually been watching the show that night and had seen, you know, anyway. Wow. When she got the letter, she immediately felt bad. And then and then the chapter in her book, so not only is outlining, outlining what she did in great detail and really naming, like, it's a shameful thing that she did and talking about it. But then she talks about the process of getting the letter and feeling ashamed and then masking that with anger and like going around and talking to all kinds of other people and being like, can you believe that these people wrote me this letter and don't they know it's not my fault and I didn't write this sketch and I didn't know it was about a real person and I didn't see, you know, the doll that I was holding until five minutes before it started and, you know, just kind of trying to justify her behavior mm-hmm. and get people on her side. And then, but that reality is she felt so bad about it that for five years she did nothing. Like she just felt bad about it. She was always worried that she was going to run into these people. And anyway, it was this, the whole chapter is about what it took for her to come to a place that she could apologize and own what she did and own it without making excuses. And she talks about, you know, what is the purpose of an apology? And it's not to justify yourself. An apology is something that is for the sake of the other person. And you let it go. Like, you just give it to them, and then they're allowed to do whatever they want with it. Like, even to not accept it. And it just was really interesting reading this book which was really just for me supposed to be like fluff and entertainment and a light distraction. And to then all of a sudden find one of the most thoughtful discussions about repentance mm. that I have come across in a really long time. And, you know, I don't know that I recommend the whole book, but I really recommend that chapter um, because she was and talking about guilt and shame and being stuck at an intersection of guilt and how that's an opportunity. I mean, it just was really good. And I was particularly impressed, and I never see this. Like, I see lots of people writing about forgiveness, even writing about repentance, but I see very few people writing about it in a way where they're saying, this is a thing I did that was bad, and I'm going to tell you the specifics in a way that does not make myself look good. And I'm not going to be the hero in this story. Mm. And I just feel like, you Mm. know, if we're people who believe in forgiveness, 
then the flip side of that coin is we ought to be people who believe in being forgiven and needing be forgiven and asking for forgiveness. And I feel like so often in the Christmas Christian community, when we talk about forgiveness, the unstated assumption is we will be the ones doing the forgiving, (laughs) that we will be the innocent victim and not the perpetrator. And we don't prepare our people ever to think, what does it look like not to give someone forgiveness, but to need to ask for forgiveness. And then I feel like that's so much of the reason why the body of Christ is so paralyzed, because when evidence comes into our lives that we actually are not the victim, but the perpetrator, we do what, you know, she documents so well that she did, which is we justify, we blame, we get angry, or if all of that fails, we just ignore it. Like we're paralyzed. Because we want to see ourselves as good people. Right. And we think like, if I did this thing, then I, then my whole identity is at stake. Mm. And so I can't have done this thing, or if I did it, it can't have been bad. And I just feel like we need to do a better job in the Christian community of, I mean, and as we enter into the season of Lent to say like, the idea that I am a sinner, the idea that you are a sinner, that's not a metaphor. <laughs> that, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is a real truth. And if we're not really, you know, confronting that all the time, yes. then we are not, we have like it's like we're in a prison cell and God has given us the key. Like we can absolutely unlock this and become free. If only we're willing to use the key of going to people and saying like, you know what? I did this. And it was wrong, and it mattered, and it hurt you, and I need something that I can't make for myself. I need your forgiveness. I want your forgiveness. I need to be vulnerable for you and ask it. And we don't we don't teach our people to do that. And so we become these self-righteous clubs where only certain kind of pain matters to us, and it's only the pain of people who were hurt by somebody else, which is why, like in the PCUSA, we have so much to say about you know, Israel's treatment of the Palestinians and so little to say about our own government's treatment of the people in Guantanamo Bay, right? Because it's easy to go tell Israel, why are you doing this to Palestinians? But we don't want to go in our own communities and saying, hey, Mm. look what's being done. And we have nothing to say about cluster bombs being dropped in Pakistan and killing children. We're just like, well, that's just a thing that we have to do for democracy. And we just don't, we don't want to talk about that yeah. because that's a pain that we are inflicting, that we have justified. We can't even face the fact that we as a Christian nation are, are raining death and destruction down mm. on other people. And um, anyway, and I, I just, in closing, it was really a woman I, I like very much posted a picture on, on Facebook this week of some women being crucified in theory. I mean, I don't know the origin of the photo if it was legitimate or not, but in the early 1900s, and she said like, this was done, you know, by the Turks in 1910. And, and she said, you know, this is what Muslim, this is what it means to be Muslim. Like, this is what happens and we can't go this way. And I just thought like, it's so classic to be able to say, let's look at this image of pain. And let's just be against this kind of violence. And this is what is identified with, you know, this Islamic faith. But, you know, I I guarantee you, you know, the people who are sitting in rooms flying the drones that are dropping the bombs on children playing soccer in Pakistan are most likely people who go to church and worship Jesus at Mm. least once or twice a year. Mm. And we don't. We don't have anything to say about mm. that. 
because we don't know how to wrestle with the fact that we do things that are bad, that matter, and we need forgiveness. Wow. And before we can get, and the other thing she talks a lot about is how she repented of it, like how she had to go back and say, there were a lot of other people who were involved true, but I'm the one who said that I would do this sketch. And I had kind of a feeling in my gut and I ignored it. And I, mm. I mean, you know, I, I am not innocent here. I did this thing. And I just have, I mean, I can't even think of the last time I saw someone wow. wrestle so honest and vulnerably about not mm. giving forgiveness, but needing it. And it, it was really powerful. Wow. So, that's so that's great about. in light of Ash Wednesday coming next yeah. week. And, um, yeah, we do things that are bad and shameful and hurt people. And and we need to not just go like, oh, I'm a sinner. But we need to actually go to them and say, I hurt you. And, yeah, and acknowledging I, that is a way yeah. of, of creating healing. I think one of the things that you said in relation to the book was that um, Polar spent time laying out what she did, like describing the wrong, and I think that's really powerful. When it's interesting, she put in there the original, I mean, five years when she was finally able to apologize, she wrote this email to this couple, and so she read the email that she wrote, and then she went, reading it again, here's what I notice. I gave a lot of excuses. I really wanted, you know, and writing, you know, it's just interesting that then she was even, like, um, analyzing her apology and pointing out where you know, it really was more about serving her own sense mm. of righteousness than it just, it was, it was really good and powerful and yeah, it was good. I don't know what that means. He's throwing hand oh, signals at me. I was trying to say we have five minutes until okay. our hour is up. Okay. Excellent. What are you preaching on this week? Um, we're looking at, we're, we're doing the last of our series, um, Jesus Fix My Life. And this week, uh, Mark chapter seven, where Jesus heals a man that is deaf and mute, and Jesus uh, spits. Uh, scholars assume like he spits on his hand and then touches the man's tongue, puts his fingers in his ears, and says, be opened, and the man is healed. And, of course, in general, we're just looking at this whole truth that Jesus heals broken people, that none of us are so broken, so far gone, that we're beyond the grace, the mercy, the power of Jesus. And so once again, as in all of these texts we've looked at in this series, Jesus gives his compassion um, uh, to people. He's compassionate toward people who are hurting and broken, uh, but he touches them and gives him his healing power. And so we'll look at that again. But also what's, what's, um, what's confronting me in this particular text is, you know, when scholars say that Jesus probably, when it says that he, he spat, it was probably on his hand and touched the man's tongue, that this was a challenge to see if this man really wanted healing because as in intimacy yeah, well as in the ancient yeah. world um, as in our in our current world as in the ancient world um, you know spit was it was gross yeah. and so if this man had gone uh, yeah, yeah. I, I want your healing but not that yeah uh, if he'd done that naming thing of like I'm not gonna yeah, go jump in that dirty yeah I don't want yeah. I want your healing but I don't want to go that yeah. route and so 
is there, are there ways Jesus is seeking to bring healing to us, to our families, to our congregations, to our nation, to our world? We're saying, yes, we want it, but mm, that's gross or that's too much. We don't want to go that route. We yeah, know I don't we want have that to... intimacy. I don't right. Want... The, yeah. the other thing that strikes me about that text, and it's ironic given our early conversation about metaphors, but I'm a complicated person, is that I, I would really want to say to my congregation, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not deaf and I'm not mute, so this isn't really about me, mm-hmm. to really be able to say that in this text, I think it is a physical healing, but it also is metaphorical in the sense that our hearing needs to be healed and our speaking needs to be healed and to be able to say there are a lot of ways where like I want to go to heaven but I don't want to learn how to hear things that I'm currently filtering out and I you know I want you to love me Jesus and forgive me for all of my sins but I don't want to change the way that I speak. I don't want to be responsible for speaking words of truth or speaking earnestly or being sincere in a world that pri- that prizes like sarcasm and um, frivolity. And so I, I think that's a really yeah. interesting, because I do think for all of us, I mean, for me personally, I know that I need healing mm-hmm. in how I receive information and mm-hmm. who I listen to and in how I speak. Yeah. That like, I'm very aware of how I speak right now. I, I'm speaking in a way, cause I know who might be overhearing this, mm. but you know, at home in my house when I'm frustrated or, you know, sitting with a friend drinking coffee when I'm feeling insecure, you know, I, I just, not yeah. all of my speech is redeemed. Sure. And, and I make true. excuses and about true that. for all of us, right? Well. And so, and I was thinking that very thing as, as, as a movement in the sermon toward the end, especially, you know, just to say, it's not about this particular man and his hearing and his speech, but it's about us and our speech. And so I want to kind of begin with a broad, we're all broken, and then this particular man, and then move to, okay, in what ways does our hearing and our speech need to be healed? Yeah, because, I mean, not that you need preaching help from me, obviously, well, but no. I do think <laughs> that that to me is is important to do that make that movement early because it's too often that we're like yeah 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 let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth mm-hmm. i mean in theory well, no but. i was thinking um uh, more more pointed toward toward our particular community our our church family in terms of worship mm-hmm. and what ways does our speaking our tongues need to be loose right mm-hmm. so we are we're we're quick to welcome others who um, want to express themselves in worship, but uh, we hold back. And so Jesus might want to loosen our tongues so that our praise might, um, there's mm-hmm. a, is, I think it's a psalm that says, Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth I shall pour forth your praise. Your praise. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, well, I am preaching the last of our Let Love Lead series. And we've done, you know, God is love and talked about how love led Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane to lay down his life for the sake of all of us. And that God, that love of God leads us to stand against a culture of um, the myth of righteous violence and redemptive violence and to be life givers instead of life takers on every, in every way. Um, And then the second week was you know, let love lead us to our enemies. And we talked about Jonah being led to be the oracle of salvation to his enemies. And what does that mean when we 
want our enemies to stay our enemies? And what does it mean when we ignore or deny the fact that our enemies are God's beloved? And that if we don't love our enemies, then how can we pretend that we are really loving the God who loves them? Mm -hmm. Like that's just Mm -hmm. a hard, hard thing. Um, and then this week is the last in the series, and um, I'm, we're going to talk about how we are called to let love lead us in our intimate and personal relationships. So um, how do we let love lead us in the people that we share space with in our homes, in our workplace, in our churches, that sometimes I think there's this pernicious um, idea in the church when we begin to quote take Jesus seriously that we will allow Jesus to lead us to the stranger to the you know impoverished person to the prisoner to our enemy but we are too important and evolved to waste time loving our families wow. like anyone can love our family so I don't mm-hmm. I don't need to do that and I think it's just hard sometimes that the people it's hardest to love at times, can be the people we actually love. Yes. Like we can become yes. so so confident in their um, in their love and in their steadfast faithfulness to us that we think that we will just treat them any old kind of way and mm-hmm. save the very best of who mm. we are wow. for those you know that we we have a more superficial relationship with. And so the text is going to be the older brother from the prodigal son and just this idea that when God shows up. Um, in in really grace-filled, miraculous ways in the lives of those that are intimate with us, do we, you know, do we join in the celebration and are we rejoicing when good things happen to those that we love or are we outside, you know, pouting while the party's going on? And to be able to say, if we let love lead, then we really want what is best for the other. And sometimes, you know, it's hard, it's, it's easier sometimes to rejoice in the restoration of our enemy than it is to rejoice in the restoration of our sibling, our brother, our sister, like to feel, especially if you're Mm. the older brother and you feel like, you know, I have been, you know, slogging through, you know, picking up my cross, but, you know, and now all of a sudden, right. I mean, that's just hard to Mm -hmm. be able to say Mm -hmm. that the love of God, if we don't believe in it, it really offends us. And it is hard to believe in it when we really understand ourselves as deserving it. Mm. Um, So, that that's where we're going this week. That's and, great. Well, we'll see, right? <laughs> it's going to be great. I have we every confidence. See. I have we'll every see. confidence. Well, thank you all for listening to us. And if you would like to hear Yolanda's sermon, you should go over to the Podbean website and look for the Derida Church podcast. And you should check out Derida Church. Um, Google Derida Church Charlotte, and it will pop you over to their website because I can never remember their website address. And in my defense, neither can you. And so if you want to find out more about The Grove, you can go. It's so true. You can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. And if you want to hear any of the messages at The Grove, you can search The Grove Charlotte podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. 